Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal, bringing 379,000 readers the latest farming news and the best of rural Ireland weekly. And you're welcome back. Well, farmers and food producers have always faced huge challenges, be it with policy, prices or the weather. But it's arguable that they now face their biggest challenge on top of all of that. There is an onus on all of us to tackle climate and the climate crisis. With farmers and food producers at the centre of that fight, it's a challenge, but it can also be an opportunity. Well, to discuss these challenges and opportunities, I'm delighted to say I'm joined this morning by former Head of Concern Worldwide, Tom Arnold, who chaired the Food Vision 2030 Strategy Committee. And also with me is EU Commissioner Mairead McGuinness, herself a former agricultural journalist and guest on the very first edition of Countrywide. And both have uh, been guests on this show over the last number of years. Great to have you here uh, this morning. We're approaching the the 50th anniversary of accession uh, to the EU. Tom, how has that impacted specifically on on Irish agriculture and rural Ireland? Well, I think in the most fundamental way, it changed the whole context for Irish farming. Uh, Before then, people may not remember, but the whole market access to markets across the world, and particularly in Europe, was much more restricted. Uh, Entry gave that change, and then it also brought uh, full membership of the Common Agricultural Policy, with all the benefits and sometimes problems that that brought, you had in 1984 the introduction of the milk quota, which was a you know a seminal moment, which didn't disappear until 2015. Uh, but overall, if you look at uh, the fate of Irish agriculture and rural Ireland. Uh, EU membership has been of extraordinary benefit. And if you look at the way the the whole capital has developed, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the whole productivity of the sector has developed, uh, a great deal of that comes back to EU policy and the consistency of EU policy. So, yeah, a a crucial moment in 1973. Yeah, and I mean, when you look back, 50 years is a long time ago and Ireland was a very different place and rural Ireland a very different place. So the policy did bring about huge changes on farms. And of course, like with all policies, if you recall, there were the good parts and then there was the difficulties. You mentioned uh, milk. You meant, remember the um, wine lakes, not Irish wine, but you had the butter mountains and those things. So there were overproduction because we had uh, supports linked to prices. And there's been an extraordinary evolution of policy. And I think we don't really give credit to the farmers who've adjusted very well with difficulty to all of those changes away from price supports towards uh, product, uh, animal, if you like, payments then land-based payments. And now we're moving into this area of environment around sustainability. And you mentioned climate, but climate is one part because biodiversity is huge. The the concerns, and I think farmers shared that concern around biodiversity loss. I would recall when I was very young and I didn't get to vote, obviously, in that referendum to join Europe, but we would be out in the fields and you you could actually fill a jam jar with different types of bees just to look at them and let them go. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a sense in which we know that we may have swung too far in one direction and now we need to moderate and find policies to allow farmers adjust to a very new new era, really. uh, And we'll come back to climate and biodiversity loss in a moment. But Tom, there are fewer farmers around now. There are bigger farms, more industrial, I suppose. Price is still a problem. Obviously, the weather, we can do nothing about it. That's nothing necessarily to do with with the EU. But, you know, low incomes, red tape and now the impact of of climate on, on farms. Um, 50 years on. So it hasn't all been rosy in the garden either. 
No, it hasn't. And, you know, you've always had a spread of farms and people who are actually in what was called or what is, what are, is called the viable category. And then you've got people at the other end of the spectrum uh, who, who could be classified as marginal. But, I mean, the, the, the other really big change in the Irish economy, over in the Irish rural economy over this period, is, I suppose, the opportunities for income and employment uh, has vastly improved. Mm. So, I mean, the number of farms, full-time farmers has obviously declined, but the number of part-time farms has greatly increased. Is and that a good thing? I think it is a good thing because it enables people to continue their farming. It's not That farming is probably not on a scale to earn a full-time living from, but then you have opportunities uh, to, to have a a household income, which... Yeah. Uh, or maybe set up another on-farm uh, yeah. on business. And I mean, you've, you, you, you've highlighted over the last many years, Damien, some of the really innovative things that are happening at rural areas. Mm. And even, you know, your your item there previously yeah. about... The, in the, Wicklow, the, yeah. In mm. Wicklow. So, yeah, I mean, it is about the fact that the country as a whole is, has been a, become a great deal mm. better off. And people, I think, coming into farming, if they're not... Uh, going to get a full-time living out of farming, what they really need to do is have the skills to do other things which can complement their farming. Um, And I just wonder about the common agricultural policy. You know, you go back to when it was set up and the reasons it was actually Mm. set up, but is it fit for purpose now? Does it it need a complete overhaul in terms of its aims and what it's there for? Well, you could say that it has had a complete overhaul over the decades. I mean, the policy today is very, very different than it was. And to some extent, um, the latest reforms, but the previous ones where I was still a member of the European Parliament. I remember saying at the time because it was about redistributing payments between farmers and that marked really a difficult time in agriculture and I don't think that the um, representation of farmers has really come together since that because there were divided interests. Those farmers who had very low payments in the past rightly were looking to increase their payments and those that were losing and have lost were very uncomfortable about that. So we had then this kind of debate within agriculture between farmers, a lot of division. Your point on prices is interesting because the evolution of commodity prices lately has been extraordinary. The last two years, uh, COVID included in that and dairy prices are obviously extremely high. Beef is good and sheep have been strong. What we're also seeing though is the input costs increase. I know when I talk to farmers and in my day when I was doing the, the job you're doing that it was very interesting in a household where there was a second income. Uh, they were the most comfortable because it was the income from outside that paid for, you know, family, if you like. And then the farm was that added on some years were good and some years not. I think, and maybe we'll get around to talking about this, is what's happening in terms of restructuring. So you have obviously farmers age, you can't go on forever. Um, if you're in sucklers, it's a tough enough business. Um, who will take over that or will that run in the same way as the past? Are we seeing uh, restructuring quietly happening in parishes where some farmers, strong farmers, we'll call them the dairy farmers, are able then to lease that land that the older farmer is leaving behind and you do get larger farms. I mean, there's big chats in the countryside about this, whether that's good or bad. Mm. And I think we need to understand the consequences of it for communities and and rural uh, societies. And and Tom, as a former CEO of Concern Worldwide, has this let's call it propping up of, of EU agriculture under the common agricultural policy, great for rural parts of, of Europe, but has it come at the expense of poorer countries and farmers in developing countries? Well, I think that was a very real 
rea- that was a reality mm-hmm. back in the 1980s. It has greatly changed. I mean, the fact that there's no more export subsidies uh, yeah. it, under the Common Agricultural Policy mean, means that there, that sort of charge is, isn't valid anymore. I mean, what is, of course, the case is that many of these poorer countries, they need as a, as a priority to develop their own agriculture mm-hmm. because that's their, mm. that's partly why they're poor. Yeah. Their economies are, are not developed. We're, we're exporting an awful lot of infant milk formula and powders to these countries as well. Is that at the expense of allowing them to actually develop their own farming? Well, I, I think it depends on what country we're talking about. But in general, I think the, the EU has got, a, you know, a good policy to try to work closely yeah. with, uh, with, with, with countries. Uh, a couple of years ago, I chaired for the Commission something called the Task Force on Rural Africa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that exercise was to try to define how Europe could work in association, in partnership with African countries to help themselves develop their own agriculture mm. and rural economy. Yeah. More of that is needed. Absolutely. And I think that's a huge part of our discussion now around what's happening with food insecurity, which is now worse because of the illegal war that Russia is waging in, in Ukraine um, and how poorer countries are being really impacted by this. So, I mean, at the Commission level, we're very sensitive to this and we're trying to work with countries uh, to help them develop their agriculture. But there was a time in the past when export refunds were impacting in a very negative way on those countries that were trying to develop for example, a beef sector or other sectors of agriculture. So there have been changes to the agriculture policy and supports to stop that happening. And I think by and large that is removed. So we now have a very different landscape. Um, I think when it comes back to how farmers are and all of these uncertainties that you referenced in your introduction, I think there's a lot of anxiety in rural Ireland about farming and the future of it and what's being demanded of them. Um, And I, I think that if you were to look at it you know, in the round, you would be frightened by Mm. the changes that we all face. And I think that's the message that needs to be said loud and clear. Farmers, as well as everyone else, we all have to change in order to address those big, big issues of climate and environment. Um, And as well as that, there are, you know, innovations and research and there's new thinking, new ways of doing things. Farmers, if you look back to when we joined the 70s and then in the 80s, farmers embraced every new idea. Some of them perhaps were not great ideas when it turned out uh, water quality problems, etc. But farmers will adapt and adjust and take on with technologies. And many of them are doing that around climate, notwithstanding that they're still quite anxious about their place in all of this. Um, and I think for if you're going to manage change in rural Ireland, you have to allow farmers own the change, uh, encourage them as farmers to talk to each other. There's no better <coughs> teacher and learner than farmers talking to one another. And sometimes they challenge the experts in a much needed way. Uh, And if you look at our advisory service, that has had to change dramatically as well from just about lashing on fertiliser to getting maximum output. Mm. Maximum output and production, if it damages the environment, is bad production. What we need is production that's sustainable. Um, And we're still working through all of those things around whether it's dairy or beef or grain or whatever. So so look, it's an opportunity as well as a challenge for rural Ireland. And Tom, I know you're on your way to Egypt for COP27 and, you know, we had COP26 this time last year and in the intervening time we've had various EPA reports which show we're going a little bit backwards so, um, I mean, have we, we have an awful long way to go in this country to actually help, I suppose, in tackling the biodiversity crisis and, and climate. Um, are we going to reach the targets, the national targets, do you think? Well, <clears throat> I think we have to. 
Uh, I mean, the reality is now that after a lot of difficulty, these targets are now set. They're set for emissions, they're set for water quality, they're set for biodiversity. It's not going to be easy to meet these targets, but I don't think we have any alternative. We particularly don't have an alternative because we, in another part of our public policy, we say we want to be leaders, international leaders, in sustainable food systems. Well, we can't be international leaders and sell ourselves as that in sustainable food systems unless we meet our own targets. Mm. So that's the reality. When we talk about the COP, of course, we move to a bigger a bigger stage. Mm. And, I mean, the, for the next 30 years, the two major challenges that mankind is facing is how can the world produce enough food to feed 20... 10 billion people in 2050. Yeah. We've about eight, coming up to 8 billion now. And how do we do that in a way that keeps the rise in global temperatures mm. uh, down to our t- the target of 1.5%? We'll hear a lot this week that we're on trajectory to reach 2.5% instead of 1.5%. And if that is to happen, Decrease. the world is in a very bad situation as the UN Secretary General is reminding us very graphically. Yeah, there's a big it's on the front of the Irish Times today. Doom is what he talks about. Mairead, you are the EU um, uh, Commission, uh, Commissioner for Financial Services, Financial Stability and the Capital Markets Union. You used the word anxiety earlier. There is a lot of anxiety in households at the moment in relation to the cost of living and rising interest rates. Do we need to brace ourselves for a, a very rough 2023 or what are the EU Commission going to do to maybe help hard-pressed families? Well, I think what the public realise since the war, since February the 24th, uh, the world has changed. We were quite optimistic in January. Things have changed dramatically. We have inflation pressures, interest rate increases and all that that means for, for families. I mean, governments are doing a lot, targeting supports to those who need it most and we're helping governments frame those sorts of policies. But to come back to your question about uh, targets, look where we have found ourselves with energy. Uh, we now realise that we are extremely vulnerable. We were over-reliant on Russian gas, Russian fossil fuel, providing up to now, it was 40% of our gas needs. That's been reduced to 9%. So we have dramatically shifted from away from Russia to find other sources of gas. And obviously that has put pressure on markets. But we're also now having to ramp up investments in renewables and be more energy efficient. And one of the areas, a huge part of my work is around sustainable finance. Uh, So what we're trying to do is put in place a structure where money gets invested in those enterprises and projects that will help us meet our climate targets. And the financial system is having to look carefully at itself to see where its Mm. vulnerabilities are around climate and what it is investing in. So there's a whole of um, policy approach. It isn't just a sector by sector. It's an integrated policy and money covers all of it. And I'll give you a figure. We need £350 annually in additional investment every year to meet our 2030 targets. We need private money, we need to make sure it goes to the right places and that we get the right results. So it's a big, big part of our work. Just on on the EU issue, uh, Northern Ireland, the protocol, the elections being put back Are the EU losing patience with what's happening in the North? Look, not at all. I think what we understand is this has been a very difficult process. 2016, the referendum, and this is, uh, we're coming towards the end of 2022. My colleague, uh, Vice President Maros Shevkovic, has been dealing very effectively with this. I I would say that given what we're facing geopolitically, 
And given that the UK and Europe are working hand in hand with Canada, the US, Japan and others around sanctions, it seems to me that we need to focus all our energies on these big, big issues and resolve the issues around the protocol to make it work for the people and businesses in Northern Ireland. And I think that's how Europe approaches this. We have a new prime minister. We have new representatives in Northern Ireland. um, And I think that nobody wanted an election pre-Christmas, but I think everybody wants to see this issue resolved for the benefit of those who will get maximum uh, from it. So I don't think in the business of politics and policy that you can ever lose patience, at least not publicly. I think you have to be strong and willing to continue working with those that are in place and and try and meet each other Mm. where there is middle ground to find that solution. Okay, I think that's um, an adage that should apply uh, across the board in a lot of other areas as well, about reaching across and finding solutions. Look, we're going to leave it there. Didn't I tell you when you came in, this is going to fly by. But um, thank you both very much. Thank you for your support over the years. And um, sure, we'll we'll meet again, as they say. Do we have a moment to say? Well, very briefly. Now, I'm not into this. I just want to say, I don't want to make any big deal of this, but I think you've done a fantastic job. I want particularly to see you've tried to cultivate a civilised and respectful debate about the whole issue of agriculture and environment, which I think is invaluable. And I I do think you've also focused on the whole issue of mental health Mm. in rural Ireland, Mm. which I think has been... So well done and good luck in your future. Yeah, and you're easy listening on a Saturday morning. (laughs) And just to say, from one who was once in that chair, there is life after. Mightn't always be an easy one, but there's a life after and the best of luck. All right. And uh, thanks very much for that. I really appreciate it.